0: Obviously, this, this notion of intersectional environmentalism is that we cannot divide nature from the people that depend upon nature. And I think if we're ever doing any sort of marine biological surveying, understanding how nature-based solutions are improving ecosystem outcomes, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, down the line, we also must be understanding how they are influencing the aspects of society and the communities and the people that depend on them.
1: Welcome to the Women in Ocean Science podcast, hosted by me, Charlie Young. And me, Mad Sinclair. We're two marine biologists on a quest to elevate the voices of our fellow female scientists.
2: Each week, we'll be diving into a new and exciting piece of research authored by a leading woman in marine science.
1: From fisheries biologists to chemical oceanographers to PhD students and researching mamas.
2: We'll be hearing from the pioneering female researchers of today to put a new spin on scientific publications.
1: And smash down some gender stereotypes in the process. So tune in every Monday for a podcast that champions the research of lady scientists and shines a positive light on the work being done to protect the ocean.
2: Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Women in Ocean Science podcast. Now, if you're sick about hearing about COVID, which at this point we all are, I would still suggest sticking around for this podcast because today we'll be delving into the social side of marine science to discuss a very interesting paper that is COVID related, but is possibly one of my favorite ever conversations on this podcast authored by marine ecologist, tourism consultant, and social scientist, Chloe King. Now, like many countries around the world, Indonesia experienced the virtual halt to tourism caused by COVID-19. And indeed, after almost two years, has only just reopened its borders to tourism. But given the sudden and prolonged removal of an industry that employed 10% of Indonesia's workforce prior to the pandemic it raises questions as to how communities and the ecosystems on which they depend have fared during this time. So the paper is called Reimagining Resilience, COVID-19 and Marine Tourism in Indonesia. And alongside its assessment of ecological systems and livelihood capital, it highlights just how critical it is to empower and invest in local communities going forwards. Now, Chloe is a fantastic scientist adopting interdisciplinary research and methods to interrogate complex relationships between the marine environment and human society. And we are delighted to have her here on the podcast to chat about this research.
1: Hi, Chloe. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing
0: today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me.
2: It is so incredibly exciting to have you here on the podcast today, Chloe, not only because you are the first marine scientist to do a community aspect and a tourism aspect that we've interviewed, but also because I just so happened to do my master's thesis in the exact location that your paper was written about. So I'm very, very, very excited to talk about this today. Um, And it's also incredibly relevant because your paper talks about the pandemic. And um, this is actually one of the first papers that I have read, um, and definitely the first one that we've spoken about on the podcast that has actually been published during the pandemic. Um, So good on you for getting that out in such a tight turnaround. So today with Chloe King, we are here discussing her most recent paper, Reimagining Resilience, COVID-19 and Marine Tourism in Indonesia. So Chloe, uh, would you like to start off by giving us a quick abstract-like summary of your paper for the podcast?
0: Yes, absolutely. I would love to. Um, yeah. And just, uh, I guess a, a bit of background sort of on, on where this is and sort of where I was at the, at the time. Um, so this was a research that I conducted basically from November or I guess September of 2019 until, um, the end of, I guess it would have been goodness, August of 2020. And then obviously in the middle of that was the life shattering and earth changing pandemic that happened that we mm. all know far too well at this point. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was in, base, this was based in Wakatobi National Park, which is a um, marine protected area national park in Southeast Sulawesi in Indonesia. And uh, the, really the, the basis of the paper was um, restructured a lot after COVID obviously became apparent, but my research initially set out to essentially look at uh, the ways in which different tourism operators, so volunteer tourism um, High end tourism and then community based and homestay homestay tourism affects the the economies, local society, and and cultures of of surrounding socio ecological systems within this space. Um, and then obviously, this was looking at how these systems were then actually prepared by these different tourism operators and and increase their resilience and their capacity for adapting under circumstances like COVID nineteen.
1: Wow a very, very poignant study. Um, And so I just want to dive in a little bit and kind of ask you, what do you mean by resilience?
0: yeah so resilience can be defined in in different ways, and um, I think that something super fascinating about the concept of resilience itself is that it has uh, it has been changing a lot as people are are sort of asking the question more and more often of of what is being made to be resilient. Um, how are we making these communities resilient and and in what ways are we doing so? I think um, the the way that we traditionally understand resilience is in terms of, of vulnerability and adaptive capacity. So, looking at the ways in which um, communities and, and ecosystems as well are able to respond to shocks, or in this case, we term COVID-19 a rupture because mm-hmm. it was obviously so much more than just a shock. Um, so, we're looking at the ways in which communities are able to adapt to and respond to change. And I think a traditional sort of notion of resilience is that you are able to return to a state, so you're able to come back to and and um, and and return to sort of the state that you were in previously. Um, obviously, with the case so with COVID, I think that we're looking at a situation in which we're seeing resilience as a concept that um, might actually be re- not necessarily returning or, or going back to something, but actually improving and, and building upon um, the, the state that you were in previously and, and being able to better respond to these changes.
2: Wow, that is so incredibly interesting. Because um, as a scientist, most of the resilience that I've come across has been ecological resilience. So it's been uh, looking at that in the terms of the ecosystems and their ability to respond to change. So it's it's really interesting, and it's going to be very interesting to hear more from you about how um, how resilience can be applied in communities. And as you said, COVID has been more of a rupture. Um, than, Mm. you know, a single event, because it's been so massive, so far reaching and very prolonged as well. Um, So at at the time that you were writing, which was back in June 2020, the pandemic had already completely decimated the travel and tourism industry, especially in Indonesia. And we're still looking at tourism in most of the world not having resumed as normal. And I'm pretty sure that um, in Wakatobi, it hasn't resumed at all. So I mean, we haven't quite dived into the findings of your paper yet, but from um, your own personal viewpoint, how do you think the situation will have advanced since the time of writing? Do you think that the findings of your paper will be amplified because more time has gone on in this situation? Or what do you think will have happened? Do you think it will have deteriorated?
0: Yeah, it's a super interesting question, and I think it's it's obviously broadly relevant to the entire uh, global tourism industry. Um, I mean, I think something that people don't often realize is is how large and how important um, tourism is. It's it, it is the you know supports prior to the COVID nineteen pandemic. It supported one in ten jobs in the world. Um, It was among the fastest growing industries in the world. It has huge potential to transform societies and economies and and ecosystems as well. But we've obviously seen and heard of the the extremely detrimental impacts of tourism uh, that it's had in different parts of the globe, whether that's ecological or sociocultural. So I, I think that working within this tourism space, um, I also work for a company, Solomar International, that's based in, in Washington, D.C., and we do uh, sustainable tourism consulting work with, with communities and, and destinations and over 200 um, different destinations around the world. But I think that in, in sort of understanding how this, this tourism landscape is changing and adapting, um, obviously, the, the focus on, on tourism and a lot of what the industry speak has been saying is, is this sort of desire to build back better, um, to, to really, to truly reimagine what potential tourism has in destinations that really rely upon it. Um, so you have places like in, in Bali and in Indonesia, where 80% of the island's GDP is reliant upon the tourism industry. Um, and then you also have places like Wakatobi. That have been imagined in this strategy from Jakarta, that is uh, what what they term as the Ten New Bali's strategy. So, mm-hmm. actually taking and and replicating this model of tourism in a place like Bali and and expanding it across the country. And I think that what we've seen in this the fallout from the pandemic is really a, a lot of policymakers and and NGOs and local communities really questioning as to whether that is the right strategy. Um, when mm-hmm. when we have an industry that is so inherently fragile and one that can be destroyed uh, seemingly overnight as it was last year, um, what are we actually going to be doing to make this make this a more resilient uh, industry, and and also have the the industry itself be making these communities and ecosystems more resilient?
1: Yeah, because as you mentioned, I think that word is key that this industry is fragile, and the COVID pandemic has just unearthed its fragility and shown, as you you know, as you say, that it could be brought down overnight, and that just bodes the question, as you say, is this the right way that we do it? Um, can this actually be Im- improved. So, Chloe, I want to go back and kind of, you know, dive in a little bit more into this industry. So. At the moment, or before the pandemic, the industry was very much high end. That's what you describe in your in your paper is that it's high end dive tourism. So I imagine that being Westerners coming and spending a lot of money to stay in, you know, private hotels and go and dive on some of the best reefs. You know, were communities already involved quite heavily? You say that one in ten people were employed um, by this industry, but actually, was it more being run by foreign uh, foreigners and expats in the area?
0: Yeah, definitely, and I think that the, the the context in Wakatobi in in particular is is really illuminating, and it's a reason why it is such an interesting social research site beyond just the the sort of ecosystem aspects that people have have come for for two decades to come and understand. Um, in in Wakatobi, for instance, there's only two foreign dive operators um, now. There's there is a third. So the two foreign dive operators. One operates on the island of Hoka, which is a a volunteer research type tour operator. The other one operates on the island of Tomia, which is an extremely high-end foreign dive operator. That you know, it costs um, a a very very large amount of money to take a a private plane actually from Bali and go directly into this island, and you stay at a private resort. You have a private house reef, Um, and and this model in particular among this this high-end dive operator what they employed was essentially a, um, a, a reef leasing scheme. So they were actually paying 17 of the villages all around the Island, um, of Tomia, uh, anywhere from 150 to $500 uh, per month in order to not fish on the reefs to in, in exchange for sort of their, their, um, not using destructive fishing practices to stay off the house reefs, to not fish around dive sites on things of that nature. And, um, and, and, and as well, you know, employed over 300 local people from the community and, and on its surface, you know, when I say those things, I think the and, and certainly if you were to look at the website of these dive oper- this dive operator, um, you would be extremely impressed with how much they have done for this community mm-hmm. and, and what they have done for, for safeguarding the ecosystems. But um, unfortunately, as is the case with a lot of these high end dive operators in Indonesia and elsewhere, Um, is that despite sometimes their best best efforts of doing these community consultations, um, the community is often left out of the discussions and particularly in a situation that you have in Indonesia, where um, decentralization policies have resulted in uh, a lot of of conflicting sources of power within places like Wakatobi. So you have the Ministry of Tourism, you have the National Park Authority, you have the Ministry of Forestry, you have um, these various different actors that are all responsible for the management of ecosystems within a space. And then you're also giving a huge amount of power and authority to these local tourism operators that have the money to essentially Um, direct the conversation into the direction they want to go. So they want to develop high-end tourism, then that's fine. They can develop exactly as they want. Um, And I think that a lot of the community members and the interviews that I did, the focus group discussions that I held, um, they were were very grateful in ways for what this tour operator had done, but they were also very resentful of the fact that um, they were not allowed to, to have any agency to grow within the organization. Many of them were not employed as managers, where they were not trained as dive guides. Mm. Um, this operator had been there for 20 plus years and, and had not trained a single local dive guide mm. from the actual island of Tomia. Um, and so I think that is when you run into a lot of other considerations um, as well with the reef leasing schemes, the way that the, the money was distributed is often handled by the local political elite within these villages. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes the, the local communities didn't necessarily understand how or where this money was going, um, how it was getting spent. So, so there's obviously a lot more social considerations that we must have as as tourism managers and and national park managers as well um to understand the the full implications for for schemes like these and for tourism development like this.
2: Wow, Chloe gosh. There's so there's so much there to kind of jump in on. <laughs> um I mean w- what you're talking about um with uh you know who you called operator a this um wealthier tourist operation that employs these um local people and as you say leases the reef i think this is a really interesting example and correct me if i'm long if i'm wrong of how this kind of feeds back into intersectional environmentalism um and how you know in, in the same way that we should be pushing for um, this resilience within the community, um, we should be thinking about intersectional environmentalism and how we can create an inclusive version that advocates for both the protection of the people and the planet. Because what we can see here is this dive resort or this, this luxury high-end operator seems to be making an investment in, you know, the local reefs for the benefit of itself, making sure that they are healthy and thriving. Thriving, sorry, to support its its uh, own touristic agenda, whereas it's not actually giving back to the community in the same way that would keep the community resilient to things such as the pandemic. And there are actually a few few quotes that came from the interviews from your paper that I'd like to just kind of pull here. One of them is. Protecting has two meanings: protecting an ecosystem and protecting from outsiders. Operator A does both, um, so that's from a respondent. And a, a second one is how are we stealing fish from them when we were here first, mm. which was from a fisherman who was who was fishing nearby the resort. Um, wow! Now these are really interesting, really interesting things to hear, and not only hear but see written in a paper because it really does show that there these people seem to be more vulnerable in terms of livelihood capital because of the factors that, you know, they're being influenced by from the presence of this touristic operation. Does that make sense?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that, that sums it up really well. And, um, you know, I think that, that it, it goes to show, as you were saying, you know, obviously this this notion of, of intersectional environmentalism is that um, you know, we, we, are, we, are, we cannot divide nature from the people that depend upon nature. And I think um, you know, I, I come from a social science background and I'm, I'm a huge, huge advocate for if we're ever doing any sort of um, marine biological surveying, understanding how nature-based solutions are improving ecosystem outcomes, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, down the line we also must be understanding how they are improving societal outcomes and how they're influencing um, the aspects of society and and the communities and the people that depend on them. Um, And I think if if you don't do that, then you really start moving into this almost eco-colonialist approach where you're going in and and safeguarding these (laughs) these (laughs) pristine environments (laughs) and saying, you know, we we must protect them and preserve them. Well, for who? Who are we preserving them for? And I think that this goes back again to the, the... this aspect of resilience that kind of came out of this paper is that um, yes, the it, it is it is without a doubt that the the reefs around Tomia um, through both biological surveying and, and just my own eyes of, of going between Hoga and Tomia or between the Tomia and the other islands, um, these reefs are were some of the healthiest I have ever yes. seen in my life. I mean, absolutely stunningly, stunningly mm. beautiful, and and truly, you could you could see the closer you got to the dive operator. Um, how incredibly effective it, their implement their protection schemes were at actually safeguarding these reefs. Um, but at the end of the day, if if local community members were were denied certain traditional access to fishing grounds, um, if they if they weren't allowed to dive on the sites for those who had local dive operators, which um, if if they were if they were run away from these certain areas um you know we can talk all we want about how this might have benefited the ecosystem but if the community was not involved in the protection and if they weren't aware of the fact that this is being protected for a reason um i think that that gets into in, into a whole host of other issues as to why why we are protecting this because at the end of the day, as we've seen with COVID, obviously tourism has disappeared. This this these dive operators are no longer operating at the minute. Um, who's left? It's it's the local community and and if we're thinking about who are we promoting this resilience for? What are what is being made to be resilient? Um, it always must come back to the local communities. It it shouldn't be that we're making these ecosystems resilient for these tourism operators to thrive. It should be that we're we're having these tourism operators thrive in order to make these ecosystems and these communities more resilient.
1: Absolutely, Chloe. I love that so much. And you'd also love the organization that I work for, Blue Ventures. You've pretty much just summed up their work in a nutshell. They're all about working <laughs> with tropical fisheries and um, you know, local communities and empowering them to be the stewards. Um, but Chloe, you know, we've spoken quite a lot about the broad um, idea behind your paper, but what I'd love to kind of like dive into is how did you actually measure resilience?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I think anyone who is is perhaps familiar with social science research and and, and qualitative surveying and methodologies knows that it is a very uh, it's much more fluid and and um, often confusing science, perhaps, than than laying down transects and doing biological and, and ecosystem monitoring. Um, it is really about this this notion of of deep participant observation and and truly understanding and and relating to these communities. So, um, I think obviously beginning with perhaps the fact of of. Just my own position within this research. Um, so I've I've been working in and out of Indonesia over the past six years, and um, have have done uh, as much as I possibly can to to familiarize myself and becoming fluent in the language and um, local customs and cultures, and and so really approached this research from uh, just a very sort of open minded desire to understand and and to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in in the the point that I was in this research was was looking at. Um, Obviously, qualitative, uh, semi-structured interviews and and some some quantitative surveys as well with with various communities across the different islands and and key community members. The the framework that I used was a framework that was developed by uh, Chen et al in 2020, or was was built upon lots many many other works as well um, that's, that you can see in the paper. And it was an agency based livelihood resilience framework. So. Essentially, what this framework is describing is that um, you're looking at sort of three different destination aspects that are going to make a, a socio-ecological system more resilient to a rupture or an external shock. Um, the first aspect being this this notion of social structure. So, looking at um, kind of taking this political ecology lens, and and um, for those of you who who may not know what political ecology is, it's it's really just it's questioning and and deeply looking into the historical and place-based understanding of of how um, environmentalism and and environmental discourses and have developed over time within a space um, so looking at the governance structure within within Indonesia so looking at the the history of, of this area and and this period of decentralization in particular um, looking at the development discourse so so how is the discourse around Tourism framed. Um, what powerful actors are the are, are ones that are actually the ones perhaps influencing this discourse? So from from NGOs working within the Coral Triangle Initiative, for instance, which is um, the World Wildlife Fund, the Nature Conservancy, Conservation International, um, these very large NGOs that have the power to shape this discourse of how development and, and environmentalism should be done. And then looking at the agency of of individuals, and then and then uh, this notion of collective agency within a society as well within a community, um, and then the fifth one, or sorry, the fifth, my goodness, the third um, <laughs> might as well be five. <laughs> um, the 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 last piece is is looking at this notion of of livelihood capital and. Um, this is quite a a concept that I really really love in in social science research, and um, I think it's super important and and one that that is is worthy of anyone kind of looking at if they're into the notion of resilience or measuring sort of outcomes in, in communities and, and social systems. Um, so you're essentially looking at at, at five different kinds of livelihood capital Um, sometimes people call them destination capitals as well so you're looking at um, human capital which can be anything from essentially skills and and knowledge of a population or a community or person Uh, natural capital which is obviously the the ecosystems that you have surrounding these areas Uh, financial capital which is is the the actual accesses to to finance and and money Uh, physical capital which is any sort of structures or or infrastructure that's built in an area and then social capital, which um, if anyone's familiar with uh, the, the very famous book, Bowling Alone, um, it talks a lot about bonding and bridging social capital. So the way that you make connections within your community and externally beyond your community. So obviously these are all extremely complex and multifaceted concepts. Um, but the what I did specifically in this research was looked at how these three different tourism operators, so the, the local community-based the, the high-end dive operator and and the volunteer operator, how they were affecting these different types of livelihood capital, um, and then and then how that in turn was impacting individual and collective agency um, among the, the, the social systems and the communities in which they worked. Um, so a lot of questions around these notions of of livelihood capital and how it had been influenced, um, and then a lot of of coding and things and in, in things like in vivo and, and way too many Excel sheets for me to <laughs> even begin to comprehend. I was just thinking,
1: I was like, <laughs> wow, this is probably a heck of a lot of data, um, to go through. So yeah, hats off to you.
2: <laughs> I, uh, I can't even imagine how much data there would have been there. Um, and that all sounds way above my knowledge of, uh, sociology, but it's so incredibly, so incredibly interesting, Chloe. And, um, I'd like to kind of jump now. We've done the high-end operator that we just spoke about. Let's jump down to operator B, which is the research project Uh, operator of tourism so this is a slightly different one because they're only there for a short period of time of the year I know because I actually researched with them for my masters Mm -hmm. um, in their corner of Wakatobi which is actually very different to the high-end resort that you see in Tamiya (laughs) because it's um, Mm -hmm. got stunning stunning coral over there whereas where the other operator is based the coral is not in the best shape um, and you know when I was there we also saw dynamite fishing I say saw we felt it in the water wow. so these destructive fishing practices are still going on there and very interestingly what I saw in your paper as well it says that respondents noted that when operator B is not in season fishermen grow bolder and illegal fishing pressure is increased mm. um, I can actually attest to this because when I, I also went out there another time for a field trip which was out of the typical season that they go. Um, and that's when we felt the dynamite in the water. Whereas when I was there in the summer, we didn't hear it at all uh, or feel it. So it really is interesting. And when we actually spoke to the Bajau, which are a local community that live just on the island opposite as well, the Bajau are like a subdivision. Is that how you would refer to it? Um
0: yeah there so the, so the the, the Bajal Laut are, um just because I I find this notion very interesting and uh, obviously uh, in terms of there's many many research papers that have been written but just to to clarify um yeah. and and the, this the the community of uh, the Bajalaut is a is a traditionally um, nomadic seafaring community, and they have mm-hmm. lived uh, for, for many generations previously lived on houseboats, and within the past um, several decades, half century, have begun to settle in communities across Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines. Um, and essentially, are many of their home structures are built above the water um, and on stilts above the water. And they're, again, traditionally a seafaring community. So their livelihoods are, are almost entirely dependent upon the sea. But they're often the number one scapegoat for this illegal fishing that happens mm-hmm. within, within national parks across Southeast Asia. In Wakatobi, for instance, they represent about, I think, 8% of the total population of the Wakatobi National Park. Uh, with the rest being the majority Bhutanese, so um, yeah, they're 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 often scapegoated for a lot of the, the issues <laughs> and and the things that go around around yeah. in the community by by local community mm. members and also NGOs. But it's a it's a hugely complex relationship, and and the Bajalat are obviously a huge focal point. I think of a lot of what the national park does, and a lot of the discourses that go around in in the park as well.
2: Yeah, was, uh, the, the Bajal, it was very funny, actually, I remember when we spoke to them, they um, they said it was the Kaladupans, which is the big islander with the Indonesians on, and the Indonesians said, no, it's the Bajal, so um, <laughs> it, it was a bit of a round robin with who was doing the dynamite fishing, and then at the end, so we were just having an informal chat with them, and we um, were over there, and I remember the guy, he said, eh, we do it, they do it, everyone does it, we're just like this is the wrong crowd of marine biologists to be telling this um and actually for anyone listening if you did want to see this exact community that we're talking about right now um there is a documentary i think it was bbc2 that produced it um called hunters of the south sea the badger which is brilliant documentary about this small community there
1: Oh, i love that i'm gonna go watch that afterwards
2: Oh, you will love it, Charlie. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, it's one of my favourite documentaries and I couldn't believe it when I turned up to do my research out there for my Masters. And I remember arriving across the boat um, to the Bajau community and I thought, this looks really familiar. <laughs> and then I must have seen that documentary at least 10 years ago or something. Mm. And yeah, it's the same one. Anyway, I digress. Um, back to what, I, what, what your paper says actually about the fishermen growing bolder and illegal fishing pressure being increased when operator B isn't there um it will be very interesting to see and I don't know if you have any thoughts on this how do you think that Covid will have affected this kind of illegal fishing pressure because obviously we're taking away that revenue stream from tourism and what's funny actually I'll just say this before I let you answer as well is that um Charlie and I, another podcast guest that we spoke to earlier this week, um, don't know when that's going to be published on the podcast in terms of timeframes yet, but uh, we were speaking about shark finning in the Maldives and anecdotal reports have actually come out and said that um, since COVID's happened and the lack of tourism has come in, um, more locals have been deferring to shark fishing again, I suppose to, uh, what's the word? Supplement? Supplement. Thank you. Supplement their income. So, um, what what would your thoughts be on that? Do you think that we could be seeing the same kind of activities within Wakatobi?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, just from talking to to local friends and and contacts on the ground that I've 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 kept in touch with, uh, I think. Illegal fishing is certainly increasing, um, or even if it's not increasing, it's certainly not getting any better as it would typically during the tourism seasons of of this operator as well. Um, and I think that kind of leads to a broader understanding and, and discussion and and around how tourism is is useful in these sort of situations. Um, I I got into this space and, and got very interested in this work when I started working as a dive master in, in Komodo National Park when I was 18 and um, worked with a lot of local community members there to train uh, people who were previously fishermen as as dive guides uh, within within the local dive company and and saw the transformative power that tourism has to to change and alter these livelihoods into more sustainable ways. Um, and, and so you can have that as well. And you can also have, um, as I as, as you mentioned, Maz, in, in the paper, where, yes, it's during, during the season where the tour operators are there, they're acting almost as informal patrollers and, and informal kind of enforcement mechanisms for this illegal fishing going on. Um, and I think both of those are are extremely, extremely important ways that tourism can directly support conservation. Um, it can it can help people uh, obtain these alternative livelihood sources, and it can also help to patrol against um, not even illegal fishers that are coming from within the park, but often those that are coming from outside and coming in um, to actually destroy a lot of these reefs, which was what most people most frequently cited as the, the biggest problem of, of illegal fishing happening. So um, but again, this leads us back to the problem that we have seen with COVID is that when this tourism market dies overnight, what's going to happen? What state are we going to return to? And that's going to most likely be, of course, the way for, for communities to feed their families, the way for people to to immediately get the income that they need to sustain themselves and, and to to continue living. And, and certainly, I think, um, you know, we can do all the education and outreach and and. Um, you know the work that that the, this operator did in over over certain summers of of doing these sort of informal trainings with the Bajau communities and things. Um, I think that can only go so far. Um, it, but the problem, I think, in a lot of cases with um, a place like the Wakatobi National Park, is that a lot of this regulation and enforcement has come from such a top down approach of of looking at. You know, how are we going to conserve these ecosystems that they have failed to see the communities within these ecosystems as the genuine stewards of these places? Um, They've not allowed for the Bajau, who have literally thousands of years of traditional ecological knowledge and understanding of the sea, to share their own perspectives and their own understanding of how these fisheries work um, and how can they be more sustainably managed? And I think that um, that is something that's so important going forward for both the tourism industry and within the places like this, and as well as the, the national park planners and those NGOs that work within this space to be considering, because it's obviously a hugely complex issue, but we're seeing the implications of what happens when when tourism stops and we don't have genuinely empowered uh, local communities. Oh
1: my God, I couldn't have like, yeah, that just encapsulates everything that i I've believe in and I think you've hit the nail on the head because um there was actually another paper that was published recently, in fact two, um, that showed that communities that were able to govern and access their lands and waters were more resilient than those, you know, that hadn't had um you know, their tenure rights protected. So, you know, those communities that were able to continue, you know, going out there and, and source food, um, and even traditional medicines had that ability to sort of club together as a community and look after one another. And also in those communities, they were able to continue defending their waters from misuse and mismanagement. So though although definitely the lack of tourism and, you know, this industry coming to its knees overnight has meant that people have had to try and resort to to things that can provide an income for their family that might be detrimental to the environment. Um, it just goes to show that if we empower communities and allow them to be the stewards of their home, of their blue place on this planet, that they actually can be resilient to shocks like this and actually be the best stewards that we could ever have um, for our oceans. Um, so I just wanted to... Now bring us on to the the third group that you looked at, the homestays. So could you tell us a little bit more about um, this industry in Wakatobi? Um, Homestays are assumably, you know, being run by local people and people can go and stay in someone from the Baja community's house and learn about their culture and have a really immersive experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, and and I think this is an industry that is is certainly been growing across Indonesia, and and more and more people within these communities are trying to get involved within the tourism industry directly, rather than being employed by some of these foreign operators that have come in. Um, and this this just touches on so many fascinating issues, and and challenges I think that came out of, of this research was talking with local community members. So many times where people were saying that we're not looking for the money. So I think someone said to me once, um, you know, the money is enough and, and talking about this private dive operator that paid the, the, the villages around Where they said the money is enough. What we're looking for is education, is interaction. We want to talk to the tourists. We don't want the tourists to be just staying in their resort. Um, We're tired of just being spectacles. And I think for both of these operators, um, they were really, it it, it was a matter of kind of taking the guests into these communities, Mm -hmm. having them walk around having them maybe look around a bit and then they leave and maybe they donate something or maybe they are giving funding in some way. Um, but this wasn't what the communities were, were, were looking for. And it wasn't what they were um, believing and desiring from this potential in tourism. It was, it was really, they wanted to learn English and they wanted to interact with people and they wanted to learn things from people that came from outside. Um, and I think that, with homestay operators, it, that is a, a way of doing this directly where you're staying with these local families and um, you're both learning things throughout the process. And so I think that that is something that we're seeing develop uh, certainly in Wakatobi and, and elsewhere in Indonesia. Um, one example that are, I'll, I'll share with, which um, Charlie, I imagine you'll be quite familiar with with your work with Blue Ventures mm. is, um, so one of the most uh, famous and, and probably most interesting examples of of a really incredibly successful homestay network is the Raja Ampat Homestay Association, which is an association <gasps> in um, what Western Papua.
2: Them. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. They, basically it was it was a matter of of when Raja Ampat was kind of opened up as this beautiful pristine you know highest biodiversity in the world yes. kind of situation um, and a lot of these foreign operators were coming in the community was like and a lot of people were ended up selling their lands to these foreign operators because they didn't have any other choices um, and they didn't have any other way of engaging with this industry mm. and so um, with with the help of some some NGOs but really really truly community driven. Um, this association was set up where the homestays are now listed online. You can go online and directly book them if you ever want to. It's a super easy process from I'm the going. guest
1: perspective. I'm going to go. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely.
0: <laughs> um, and, and I know Blue Ventures has facilitated some yes. of these like w- like learning networks as well of of bringing, I I worked in Team Day for four months in Minoturo yes. and that was um, oh my <laughs> not goodness. with Blue Ventures. But I, You've probably met some I know of my really colleagues it. then. I'm sure I have. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we'll we'll have to uh, <laughs> we'll have to see who else we know yep. in this tiny, tiny <laughs> two degree connected world. Tiny
2: industry that we've already we've already established that that Chloe actually lives with one of the women in ocean science team members,
0: <laughs> which we didn't realize before this podcast, which just shows how small this industry is. It truly is. I'll keep talking and we'll probably find ten more people that we can <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we can connect with between us. Um, but yeah, so this network obviously is incredible. But but what it's allowed this community to do in in the fallout from COVID is rather than than relying on these donors that come and go, mm. these NGOs that come and go, these foreign operators that come and go, it is the community that has now gone out and and my friends have told me that people have have put up signposts basically like out over the reef that say "Do not fish here. This is our reef." Wow. They are truly becoming these stewards of the environment, where where they are the ones that are that I are mean. taking control of this, and because they have safeguarded this ecosystem for the purpose of of benefiting from it, from tourism, um, they now are able to also rely on, on higher fish biomass and increased stocks of of these fisheries as well. Um, So there's, there's a whole cyclical reason as to why it's so important that these homestay networks are empowered. And I think um, in Wakatobi, it's not quite to that extent yet. I don't think that there's a network or association that's quite as, as um, robust as, as what you have in Raja Ampat, but um, it certainly can can go that way mm-hmm. if the government pays attention to this and they decide that they want to invest as much resources in, in these local networks as they do in these very powerful and elite uh, foreign operators.
2: And um just to kind of jump on the back of that there's also a brilliant thing that um that your paper speaks about as well and that is how local communities are affected by you know having the livelihood capital to start a homestay and you know the rate of failure of these of these homestays you say that many homestays have tried and failed due to a lack of human capital and also that element of actually getting tourists there But your paper also says that it indicates a different kind of resilience in that, um, you know, there's an inherent ability to go back to grassroots and survive on the bare minimum across the majority of Indonesian society that still exists. And um, you're talking in this part about those that did have the livelihood capital to create a homestay or hotel, they were less likely to fail. And those that did not were more likely to fail, but they didn't actually face high financial consequences as a result of that. So I thought that was Mm. really, really interesting. Could you tell us a bit more about this?
0: Yeah, I think that situation is is very, very... Maybe best exemplified in, in a place like Bali. So after um, COVID nineteen started happening, obviously, and um, I think it was late March or in early April at that point, um, I, my research grant was was canceled, and so I had to end up going. I ended. Up Going to Bali and and actually shifting a lot of my research to look at what was happening there, um, which was almost in many ways, uh, you know, equally if not more fascinating because of the extremely high reliance of of the island economy on on tourism. And so, what you can see in a place like Bali is that when you are in the, the areas, if anyone's ever been there, if you've been to to Kuta, to Denpasar, oh gosh, i been to Kuta. Um, to mm-hmm. th- yeah, I would
1: say never go back to Kuta. Never. <laughs> yes, it was a one-stop
2: shop, and never again. <laughs> Indeed.
0: Okay, sorry, we digress again. <gasps> back to back to the back to the science. <laughs> it is certainly not the nicest place to be on the on that island. That is for sure. Um, from from Kuta to Canggu to uh, even to Uluwatu, in some extents, um, you know, as tourism starts to tourism development really starts to favor this high end hotel development um, what you're seeing is that these communities are losing traditional access to their land um, they're giving it up in favor of or being forced off their land in favor of this this large hotel development and um, you know what ends up happening is that you have communities that are obviously extremely ill-equipped to face a crisis like, COVID-19, or, or even when Mount Agung erupted in, I think it was 2017, um, this was also a huge fallout from tourism and, and really impacted the economy because of this reliance on, on one single industry. And so, but then you get into places where You're up further north um, where there's there's an amazing uh, ecotourism network. Um, And and an interview that I did with one of the main staff there is that she noted that they try and make it the focus of tourism and community-based tourism development to be to, to emphasize that tourism is an aspect of your income. It should not be all of it. It shouldn't be your ultimate goal. And and as a community, you should still be relying on these traditional permaculture farms. Um, you should be thinking about development in terms of this long-term social ecological resilience. And, and I think that that is certainly something that we're seeing shift within the tourism industry. Um, there's a a really, really interesting term that's starting to come out um, with a lot more focus on this concept of regenerative tourism, where, where tourism is 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 in itself not just a sustainable thing, but it is something that is actively enhancing and, and making these places more, better and more resilient. And so um, whether that's through through creating uh even regenerative agriculture farms uh, alongside tourism, whether whether the the resorts or things that are built can actually grow food and sustain communities. If if, if tourism were to die overnight. Um, it's a hugely complex thing, obviously, but I think that we're, we're starting to sh- see a, a, a shift in discourse here that's really, really important, um, where you're looking at, at the ways in which these communities can be sustained if visitors end up uh, disappearing as as they did last year. Wow. I
1: love that because although, you know, the COVID, COVID has ultimately led to a lot of loss, a lot of life, a lot of income loss, it's ultimately giving these communities were potentially giving the world an opportunity to change its ways and for the better, because as you say, this industry hasn't been benefiting communities. Um, mm. It's just been benefiting and lining the pockets of a few. And really, if we are going to tackle the onset of the ecological crisis that we face, you know, these things need to change and these communities need to be empowered. So whilst, you know, COVID mm-hmm. has obviously been horrible for many reasons, it does offer a, potentially a, a new way and an opportunity to start building back better.
2: Yeah, yeah, I absolutely. couldn't agree more. And you know, I really don't think that social science is talked enough about in marine science. Um, nope. <laughs> and I mean, Chloe, why why do you think this? Why do you think this is? And how do you think we could um, make it come into the mainstream conversation of marine science going
0: forward? It's such an interesting question and and one that I've always sort of wondered about. And it's funny because I'm doing my master's program right now um, in Marine Systems and Policies at the University of Edinburgh. And- I, I think a lot of people in my program come from a traditional sort of more ecological and, and, and marine ecology background, which is obviously hugely important. But um, I am absolutely the worst at anything when it comes to any sort of quantitative data analysis, <laughs> um, and it's it's pretty hilarious to put me in front of a, a like a coding program <laughs> and see how I can get on. But. Um, but I think that this this notion of just talking to people and talking to communities and, and understanding that what we do to improve and enhance these ecosystems cannot be done in a vacuum. They can't be done um, without considering both the, the involvement and the implications for communities. Um, I think that, that we are starting to live in this um, I forget the exact term that people have brought up. It's like this post nature, I think, is the, the latest thing that's been throwing around. It's the it's apocalypse.
1: The, <laughs> the apocalypse is one of them for sure.
0: Oh yes. <laughs> Other than the apocalypse, we are living in a time <laughs> where we're, we're starting to really realize that that we cannot be separated from nature. Um, as we are seeing in this COVID crisis, by destroying nature, we are unleashing these pathogens that previously were were hidden inside of deep rainforests that have now been destroyed mm-hmm. for our you know desire to consume palm oil or whatever it is. You know, you can make go round and around in circles and say you know just exactly how our actions are affecting nature, um, but we don't realize exactly how much. Our, our preservation and, and our and our and our work to restore nature is actually then impacting our own health, um, and so I think that we're starting to to realize that. I think I hope that that is becomes a, a big focus coming out of this COVID nineteen crisis. Um, but I absolutely think that this work of of science communication, of social science, of of thinking about how our work as marine scientists are impacting these communities. Um, and and it doesn't even have to be researching with or or um, a, a, you know about these communities. It can also be just uh, you know. Right now, I'm working on translating my article into Indonesian and um, and disseminating That's it with pretty. the communities and and talking and holding these Zoom calls and workshops and things to to discuss with them about my findings and mm-hmm. and I think that even even that um, you know for this volunteer operator that you you work for, Mads, um, there's so much amazing research that comes mm. out of there uh, that people do all year round and and such incredible findings. But the number of community members that I encountered who could say what this operator actually did yeah. was extremely yeah. small. Yeah. Um, very
2: few people knew what, I what they I can 100% after. second that. And I think it is so incredibly important. And I remember saying at the time that I thought it was incredibly important that the local communities were made more aware of what we were doing because many of them worked on the boats and in the dive center um and in the kitchen but um had very very little involvement in what we were actually doing out there as scientists so um chloe i think your project is amazing and it, it really does and I, I love to hear as well that you're translating the paper into bahasa um that makes me yeah. so excited i'm over the moon to hear that and um yeah this is this was a really really interesting paper so thank you so much.
1: Yeah, Chloe, and I just want to echo that. And I think you've, you know, this is a brilliant place to kind of like wrap it up because the point you made there about the fact that many of these communities have no idea what these tour operators are doing. You know, I think that there is this lack of communication between these organizations and these local communities in communicating back the value Or, you know, for example, Blue Ventures, the organization I work for, we're working heavily on data feedback sessions, actually translating this ecological data that we're gathering, you know, to feedback to the community and say, here, look, this is the, you know, this is what happens when you protect your reef. And this is why we're here and why we're trying to empower you. And this is what, you know, this is why we're doing it. And when you actually do that. These communities are, are you know, so proactive. They want to look after their natural environment. They just need to be given the opportunity to do it and the rights to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so thank you, Chloe. This has been brilliant. I think the takeaway from this is that marine conservation is a social justice issue and that we can't protect our oceans without protecting people. Um, and Chloe, do you have any inspiring last words for all our listeners out there um, to kind of wrap up? Oh goodness! That's no pressure. Um,
2: the <laughs> we do this
0: to everyone. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> um, I would say, I mean, just because this is the Women in Ocean Science podcast, um, if anyone has ever come across this notion of of feminist political ecology, um, if anyone out there is listening, look it up. It's super fascinating, really lovely. Uh, very. There's some incredible authors that have worked on this in this term, but. Basically, all that you need to know is that the way that a lot of research has been showing, the way that women approach science, is incredibly different and distinctive from a lot of their their peers. Obviously, their male peers, um, but also just even even for men, incorporating this notion of feminism within research, um, it it is. I, there, there are so many people that I've spoken with who. The way that that you are listening and the way that you are incorporating aspects of compassion and care and understanding um, and true and genuine interaction uh, so much differs from this very traditional sort of hard science-y kind of approach to a lot of this work. And I think as as women in, in ocean science and women ocean leaders, um, we need to be to be embracing that notion of of ourselves and 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 thinking about. Um, doing this research and doing the work that we all love from a place of compassion and a place of, of, of deep desire for understanding. And I think that that is something that we have, um, something that's hugely transformative and, and something that we can all do within this space. Um, in, in engaging in the work that we do. And so, yeah, so there's many notions that I could pull from in that, but I just I just love kind of thinking about that and, and reading about it all the time, even though I'm only just beginning to kind of dive into the literature there, but it is, it is such a fun and interesting field and, and something that I think everyone in all of our work could potentially bring in aspects to. Wow.
1: I love that, Chloe. Make a note, everyone. I've actually been, I touched on this subject the other day because recently for International Women's Day, I was doing the research and came across this and actually how women have a natural tendency to care more about you know environmental dis- uh, destruction and things like climate change but I reckon we could do a whole podcast on I was that just about um, but to say just, that. I was
2: like I'm just making a quick <laughs> note about this also is it de- Chloe we should definitely have a chat about this in for future women in ocean science mm. stuff as well I would love to hear more
0: absolutely let's yeah. do it
1: but um Chloe you know for all our listeners out there who would like to learn more or follow your journey, where can they find you? Are you on
0: socials? Yes, I am, and all of my socials are um, the same, and my emails are also the same. So it's uh, Chloe King, C H L O E K I N G three one three, and that's Instagram, Twitter, uh, and um, that is also at a Gmail at the end of that, and that's my email if you want to reach out.
1: Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Chloe. It's been an absolute pleasure having yeah, you it's on been- today.
0: Thank you guys. It so has much. been absolutely wonderful. Thank
2: you so, so much, Chloe. Um and hopefully chat to you again soon. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And we'll go maybe we'll go back to Wakatobi yes. together, man. One hundred percent,
2: Charlie. You, Charlie's like, Where's my invite? <laughs> <laughs> I am so wounded right now. You're always invited, Charlie, do don't it. worry. <laughs> Have been listening to the Women in Ocean Science podcast brought to you by Women in Ocean Science and hosted by me, Mad Sinclair, and Charlie Young. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to give it a share, and you can find us on socials as at Women in Ocean Science. We are a non-profit organization, so every like, comment, share, and bit of support goes such a long way in helping us to elevate the voices of the women working to protect the ocean and helps us to continue on our mission. Thanks for tuning in, guys, and I hope you have an awesome week.